The following message features Jeff Perswell and was recorded at the second main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries' Worship God UK 2014 conference. It's entitled, Faithful to Proclaim. Jeff is the Dean of Sovereign Grace Ministries Pastors College. Well, good morning. Um, it, is a, it is a special privilege to be here with you at this conference. Um, to, to be at a worship, can I move this? To be at a worship conference, it's not like being at a, you know, a community meeting deciding on you know, what kind of grass we want to plant. It, it is to be among people who love to worship. Uh, it, it's, it's to be among people who are passionate about Jesus, who are passionate about expressing to Him what He has done for them, what He means to them. Um, those are good folk to preach to uh, and to be among. And, and the topic, worship. The, the giving of ourselves in, in worship and to, to, to honor and delight in the greatness of the one who has made us his own. That is joyous business, isn't it? That is that's serious business. Um, and, and let me just say, if, if I may, on behalf of Sovereign Grace, we're, we're just so grateful that you are here. Uh, we're so honored that you would come. We're so honored to be hosted uh, in, in your country. Uh, for those of you from from here, um, and my friends would tell you there are few places on this globe that I would rather be than here. I, I actually came to Bath every year for about 10 years because I served, I had the honor of serving on a, the board of a charitable trust, and my wife came with me many of these times, and so she, I would be in meetings, and she would just walk the city and explore the city. She knows it better than I do, and it, we have some really sweet memories here. That's just personal. Um, what's more important is to be back in this context. And I was told by Nathan that there were over, among the registrations, over 100 churches represented here. 100 churches. And the thought, the thought of that, it, I heard that last night, and the thought of that just, just struck me. I, I thought, uh, now that's, that's significant. Uh, I love being here. But that's significant. And a hundred churches. I mean, we're doing a conference here. I'm grateful for conferences. God does things in conferences. Praise God for conferences. But we don't love conferences. We love churches. Um, we love the fact that people who are serving, serving in the worship and in various capacities in churches are here. We, we love folk like you. And so we have prayed fervently for you that... In your coming, you would be encouraged, you would be refreshed, you would be equipped. So that's our hearts. Uh, you know, some of us came over from America. We don't come from America bringing a lot of stuff. We come from America bringing seeds. That's it. Same seeds you have, same seeds you offer your folk on a Sunday morning. So uh, we're going to talk about that seed this morning. Uh, Bob asked me to preach on the Word of God, and that's what we're going to do. So. Uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, Paul's second letter to Timothy. <clears throat> I, I, I want to share something. I debated about whether to do this, but I, I want to share something personal. It's uh, something... If I can. <laughs> Something fairly recent. I don't share this to sort of just kind of pour out my heart to you or disclose myself. But I, I hope it will help us identify with what we're looking at here in the Word. Um, ten months ago, my... Um, <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> ten months ago, my mother went to be with the Lord. And... Uh, Although it seems like a few weeks. Uh, there, there was nothing tragic about it. Uh, she lived a long and full life. Uh, she, she was a, a rock in our home. I don't know what your mom is like or what some of the moms out there are like, but she, she was a rock. It's one of those kind of people that they just don't die. 
You know, you just don't expect them. They're always going to be around. She was sort of the gravitational center of our family um, and went strong until the end in her 80s, living on her own, driving. Uh, we gave her an iPad for her 88th birthday. You don't give 88-year-olds iPads. Within six months, she knew how to work the iPad better than I did. I kid you not. Uh, she started an investment club with a bunch of older ladies in her 70s. And I used to be in, in uh, merchant banking, basically. And so she would call me up and, so what do you think about this stock? I've calculated the uh, P.E. ratio and the over-under ratio, and I, I'm thinking it's pretty good. What do you think? And I was, Mom, come on. You're supposed to be, like, knitting and um, <laughs> making tea. So that's how she was. Uh, so she went into the hospital a few days prior to that, and it, it, it did come out of the blue a bit. And uh, my family, my wife and my two children, we went down. We traveled to, to spend a long weekend with her, and we weren't sure what it was, um, although it was concerning. And then we found out the day we got home that she had lung cancer. Never smoked, anything like that, but just had lung cancer. And uh, so, so what we had feared turned out to be real, and so immediately began contemplating, all right, what, what are the next two months, four months, maybe six months going to look like? I actually left the country the next day, uh, assured by the doctors that, no, 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 you have plenty of time. So I, I was out of the country. Um, I preached on a Sunday morning, and right after I got off the stage, there was a text from my wife. So, you know, I found out that she had, um, I'm so sorry, I found out that she'd slipped into a coma. So I rearranged my trip, uh, got on a plane, met my wife there in Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, we were told that her body was, you know, shutting down, wouldn't be long. And so she was uh, in her home with hospice care. And so for the next 37 hours, uh, I did not leave her side. There's no way. <laughs> going to do that. Uh, the next day, it was Tuesday, I was able to spend an extended time alone with her. And I was told, and I've read this, that people in comas often are able to hear and understand and be aware of their surroundings. And so that morning, I had, I had my time. And um, I took that time to tell her some things. I told her how much I loved her. I told her how grateful I was for the heritage that we had received. I thanked her for raising me in a church, and I thanked her for praying for me, and I thanked her for believing in me. Uh, she, you know, like a typical mom, I guess, but she, she just thought I could do anything. Uh, she was so unrealistic <laughs> about me. Um, but, uh, and then I read to her. I just read. I read about Jesus. I read about heaven. I read about what she was about to experience. And my mom was this, she just loved learning. She loved, as, as, you, as I, I mentioned, and she was just always reading and always learning. And so we just had this shared love of knowledge and experiences. And I told her, I said, Mom, you are about to know so much. I'm so jealous. Um, wasn't jealous before, but I was at that moment because I knew her eyes were about to be just open. And uh, I prayed for her, told her I'd miss her. That was my goodbye. And 24 hours later, she, was, she went to be with the Lord. And that exchange, along with the prior visit a few days before, was, was maybe the most significant in my life. That, besides my wife, I have never communicated Things more poignant, things more precious to me, things more important, things I want to get out there before I'm done. I mean, I'm forever grateful for that last visit. I'm forever grateful for those last hours. They were unlike any other we'd had before. Now, why do I tell that? Well, just to make a point, last exchanges matter. In all the chatter of our lives, last exchanges have a, have a disproportional weight and significance. They, they clarify. They warrant care and thoughtfulness. They, they bear paying close attention to. And in Paul's 
second letter to Timothy, we have a divinely inspired last exchange. Uh, These are, as many of you know, the final words penned by the Apostle Paul. And it's unlike anything else he wrote. Uh, His life is drawing to a close. Three decades of ministry behind him. An executioner's sword awaiting him. And in this letter, the tone changes from the other letters. This is not the apostle on the battlefield, in the war room, traveling, preaching, strategizing. This is a frail man in a cold, dungeon-like cell staring death in the face. He's not planning to work. He's not nurturing godly ambition. He knew his work was done, except for this last exchange. And so Paul writes to Timothy not to, to teach so much like he does in, a, in the letter to the Ephesians or not to correct as he does in the letter to the Galatians. He's writing to encourage Timothy, his, his son in the faith. It's intensely personal. He's preparing Timothy to, to carry on, to lead in Paul's absence. He's, he's wanting to brace him with resolve for, diffi- for a difficult future. And at the heart of it all is Paul's exhortation to stand firm, to remain faithful to the gospel, to remain faithful to the gospel. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10 You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So you you see what he's preparing him for. Difficult times are coming. People will be committed to their passions. False teachers will distort God's truth. People will desert the gospel. And they're coming after you, Timothy. You're going to suffer. So living for Christ will cost you, Timothy. You've got to be prepared. You've got to be armed. So how does he arm him against this onslaught? What does he say in such a last exchange? Well, let's read on. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Talk about a called to be faithful conference. This is Paul's own mini call to be faithful conference. How will Timothy lead on? How will Timothy serve the church? Timothy, you've got to take hold of what you've been given. You've got to grasp onto what has been transferred to you. And the substance of Paul's counsel to Timothy is, is no less relevant for, for us gathered in, in this particular context. We're, we're gathered here, aren't we, as worship leaders or those who serve in various ways the church's worship or, or those who love to worship. And, and fundamentally, therefore, we're, we're, we're not here as professionals. We're not here as those with a, a ministry identity. We're here fundamentally as worshipers. How will we stand firm? How will we remain steadfast and faithful in a culture that opposes all that's precious to us? How will we, more immediately relevant, how will we 
be faithful to worship God rightly? How will we lead? How will we presume to lead God's people in the most significant human activity imaginable? Serious business, isn't it? Well, it's not difficult to sum up Paul's exhortation. I believe it's God's exhortation for us this morning for all the ways in which we serve and lead. Here's why I'd simply sum it up. The most decisive factor for a faithful leader, the most decisive factor for a faithful servant, the most decisive factor for a faithful Christian, the most decisive factor is devotion to God's Word. The most decisive factor for a faithful person, a faithful leader, is devotion to God's Word. Of all the possible options, all the alternatives people look to for, for help and for guidance and for insight and for strength and for motivation, for the Christian life, for Christian service, for, for leadership, and, and you know this, in the worship world, the options are they're countless. But of all those things, nothing is more vital. Nothing is more decisive for a faithful leader, regardless of your role. Nothing is more decisive than devotion to God's Word. And, and I'm not talking here about, you know, nodding our heads in mere acknowledgement. Look carefully at Paul's words in, in verse 13. He says that these evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. They'll proceed. They'll, they'll go forward in their their pursuits of sin and their worldly thinking. But Timothy is to be different, verse 14. Timothy, but as for you, continue. More literally, as for you, remain. It's the word for remain, to abide, stay. They go on, you stay, you continue. You don't move from what you have learned and believed. And what has he learned to believe? Verse 15, the sacred writings. The scripture. That's where you stay, Timothy. Don't go on. Don't move past. Don't think it's old-fashioned or ancient or boring. While the really exciting stuff is new or what's hot or what's happening, what's relevant, what's lighting up the social media, that's nonsense. God's Word is not outdated. God's Word is enduring. It's stable. It's rock solid. Nobody looks at Mount Everest and says, huh, that's boring. <laughs> Do they? That's what we have here. Uh, devotion to God's Word doesn't make you old-fashioned. It doesn't make you outdated. It doesn't make you irrelevant. It makes you clear-eyed. It makes you courageous. It makes you counter-cultural is what it makes you. Stay here. To the young folks among us in particular, stay here. Leaving this is what makes you boring. Conforming to the culture is what makes you irrelevant. It makes you just like everyone else. And now you cease to make an impact. You, capt you captive to conventional wisdom, spouting cultural mantras that you can hear on any web page, fascinated with the latest blog post or YouTube, here today, tomorrow, just like chaff, it's gone, it's forgotten. This, this lasts forever. This is enduring treasure. Stay in the Scriptures, Timothy. Don't leave the Bible. Lead with the Bible. So here we are, right, gathered at a worship conference, actually with a quite unusual title for a worship conference called To Be Faithful. Um, I love that. Worship leading. So think about that. We, we're called to be faithful. So worship leading, serving the church's corporate worship. That places upon us serious obligations. It calls forth from us certain priorities. You can't just strut onto the stage and do whatever you want to. 
of all the priorities we must have, there is one that towers above all others. There is no more important priority to have as a leader. If you would be a faithful leader, if you would be a faithful team participant, if you would be a faithful worshiper, if you would be a faithful Christian, you must purpose to stay here. You must purpose that your life and your leadership, your worship be governed by this book. That's Paul's counsel. That's all I have to say. Almost. (laughs) The most decisive factor for a faithful leader is devotion to God's Word. Well, let's let Paul, let's let God explain that a bit. Uh, Paul bolsters and supports this exhortation with three reasons why Timothy should hold fast to the, to the Scriptures. Scripture doesn't just like lay demands on us. Scripture reasons with us. Scripture, scripture engages us, and, and here we see three reasons why Scripture is the decisive factor for your life, for your leadership, for your serving. Three reasons designed, by the way, to motivate us to keep Scripture central in our worship, in our leading, in our lives. Reason number one. Reason number one, Scripture's origin. Scripture's origin. Look with me at, look with me at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Here is one of the most important verses in the Bible about the Bible. There's no more important thing we could say about the Bible. Three words in the original. All Scripture, God breathed. And you're probably familiar. Older translations use use words like inspired. All Scripture is inspired by God. But breathe, my translation here, the ESV, breathed out by God, God breathed. Just the right translation for the word. It's what the word literally means. It's not, so the point is not that scripture is somehow inspiring. It's not talking in the first instance of scripture's effect. It's not elevated a bit like really profound literature. It's not like Shakespeare. Uh, Paul is talking about the origin of Scripture. It's, the, it's this product. It's the product. It's this book that is God-breathed. And, and that God-breathedness, that, that's a metaphor for speech. In other words, these words aren't just written by men. They are breathed out by God. They are the product of His creative breath, His very words. Now, that could sound strange to modern ears, uh, but behind Paul's words are verses like this, Psalm 33, verse 6. Listen to this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. So Paul's standing on the psalmist's shoulders here. God breathed. He spoke. And the universe leapt into existence at his authoritative word. So you see what Paul is saying. Uh, Just as God created the world by his creative breath, his authoritative command, so did the word come into existence. Just as God said, "Let let there be light, let there be stars, let there be planets, let there be quasars, in the same way, he brought about the scriptures. Let, let there be law. Let there be prophets. Let there be gospels. Now, there, there, there's some massive biblical realities behind that statement, behind that idea. God's speaking is, is different than ours. Ours is an analog of his, by the way. Speech is not some evolutionary development. We are made in the image of God, and our speech is an analog of Him, which is why we're so careful with our words. Yet, God's speech is different. Uh, When we speak, words, sound waves. Uh, When God speaks, listen carefully, when God speaks, He doesn't merely dispense information. When God speaks, He acts. 
a key truth in Scripture. God accomplishes His will by His Word. All that God accomplishes, He does so by His Word. Keep an eye out for that when you read your Bible. Throughout Scripture, God's Word over and over again is linked with a, 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 a spectrum of His powerful activity. Already mentioned, he creates by his word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. After he creates, he, ke- he sustains what he then created by his word. Psalm 147, 15, he sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like the wool. Then it talks about his, the ice that comes, and it says, he sends out his word and melts them. So God continues to sustain what he made by his word. He reveals by his word. He doesn't merely give pictures or visions. When when God revealed himself to the prophets, it says the word, the, the davar, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the word of the Lord. It was word revelation that came. He, he delivers by his word. Did you know that? Psalm 107, verse 20, he sent forth his word and healed them delivering them from all their destructions. Uh, He orders history by his word. Isaiah 55, so shall my word be which comes forth from my mouth. It shall not return void without accomplishing all that I intended it to do. Do you see? God's, God's word is his, through God's word, he acts. And then we come to the New Testament. And And then Jesus comes, and then as John tells us, he is the the Word. He's called the Word of God. What does that mean? Well, what it means is this. Jesus is God's own mighty self-expression. The one who perfectly reveals the Father, and the one through whom he's now acting. Jesus is the the mightiest act of all the acts of God. And so, then Jesus, we read in the Gospels, then Jesus' words are like God's words. He speaks, and what happens? Storms cease. He speaks, and what happens? The dead are raised. And so, the writer of Hebrews says to us in Hebrews 1-3 that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. So, you're sitting here in a chair because Jesus is there upholding that chair, upholding you, upholding the earth below it with his, with his powerful word. And if for one moment, one nanosecond, he withdrew that upholding word, then I don't know. Maybe some physicist in our midst could speculate. Hey, we're not here. Do you see? So that, that's the idea. God's word is not simply speech. It's not simply information. It's not simply doctrine. It's not simply lyrical content. The word of God is his creating, his upholding, his preserving, his governing, his saving instrument. It's what he uses to accomplish his will. John Calvin called Scripture the scepter of God. It's his instrument of rule in the universe and in our lives. Where where God's Word is, God is. Where God's word comes, God comes. God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present at all, in all points of space with all of his being. But he is especially present. He is actively present where his word is. So, so when we read or hear the scriptures, it's not just information about God. It it is God coming to us. It it is God addressing us. It is God exercising His rule over us. Each and every time the Scriptures are read, the Scriptures are meditated upon, the Scriptures are sung, there is divine activity occurring. 
That's really at the heart of what corporate worship is, isn't it? Craig reminded us last night, it's not our initiative. It's not our idea. It's not sincere Christians getting together to do something for God, is it? Father, we heard, seeks worshipers. And, and throughout salvation history, that's what God has been doing, seeking out a people, revealing himself to that people, gathering them together to address them, and then they in turn responding to the one who made them his. And so, think about your Sunday meetings with all that goes into them, there are songs to be chosen. There are systems like this to be, to be set up. There, there, there is sound to be mixed. But so much of our focus can go in... I mean, I've got a mic on. So much of our focus can, goes into making our voice heard. You know what's most important? That God's voice Amen. is Amen. heard. Biblically, what's preeminent is not that we, sound waves come from us, but that God's voice resounds in our minds, in our hearts, our meetings. That's, that's, our, that's, our, that's our goal. I, I, I think that it's easy for us, it's certainly easy for me. Um, I mean, we are hearing these songs, I'm down here worshiping. Um, it, it's easy for me to conceive of worship as a monologue. It's, it's me to God, right? It's me expressing my heart, expressing my feelings, expressing my thoughts to God. Worship is not a monologue. Worship is dialogue. Worship is dialogical. Uh, God speaks, we respond. All, if you get nothing else, all true worship is fundamentally at bottom it can be a lot of other things, but fundamentally, it is a response to God. And not a self-generated response, not a self-defined response. You know what? There's a biblical word for self-generated, self-defined responses. You know what that, the word is? It's called idolatry. No, it's, it's, it's an appropriate response to his self-revelation. That revelation comes and informs our understanding. That revelation comes and, and shapes our attitude. That revelation comes and guides our response. That revelation comes and changes our hearts so that a response does come that is pleasing to God. So, if... Okay, reason with me. If worship is a response to God, and, and if God is transcendent, as his word says... Other than us, immortal, invisible, dwelling in unapproachable light, his thoughts, his thoughts and ways higher than ours as the heavens are above the earth. If that's true, then above all, in our worship, we must be faithful to proclaim. Faithful to ensure that God's word is heard. With all the instruments and all the equipment and all the, the projection and all the, the trappings of corporate worship, the irreducible minimum of true worship is God's self-disclosing word. That's the irreducible minimum. G worship teams, worship leaders, we want to give God's word space. You see, make room for it. Give it space in our, in our reading. Give it space in our, in our teaching. Give it space in our exhortations. Uh, give it space in our singing. That's why last night, do you remember at one point last night, we had a section where we had Scripture projected, and we all said that. You know why? Because we didn't want to just drift from one expression, one emotional expression to another, just kind of drift along. Well, now I'm feeling this, and I'll say this, and now you know, I'm just kind of going along, and it's just a flow. And No, we want God's Word to be heard, and then that comes, and, and that produces response. We wanted God's Word to inform and to shape and to guide and to propel 
our response. Two weeks, we do this in, in, our, in our own uh, small church plant back home. We, we, we want to make space for God's Word, and so we, we have times where God's Word is, is spoken in the midst of, of our singing, and sometimes it's, it's people from the congregation reading. Sometimes we'll read things together. Uh, sometimes we'll um, do responsive readings. You know, why do we do that? Because we just want to in, ensure that that what we're responding to is truth and not our imaginations. And I, I just remember two weeks ago, we, we were talking about this as pastors afterwards. There was a, a, a guy got up and read, and he didn't even do that great a job reading. But he, he read a text after a couple of songs, and you could just... You want experience. You could just feel hearts just, whoa. And then, man, it was like people were a minute. And then the next song just started off, whoa. It was just, there was response. There was power. It was, it was glorious. Why? Because God's word came. God's word illuminated. And all of a sudden, yeah, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Okay, okay, Jesus paid it all, paid it all. And after a while, what did he pay? No, but but here it was, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Oh, man, yes, that's right. Jesus did that. Jesus did that. You know, unless we, we think of this, oh, so what are you saying, Jeff? We, you just want us, it's just, unless you think that this means we're an appeal for something overly formal or dry, you know, the stuff of theological lectures and, you know, not passionate worship. Come on. Let's remember a, a fundamental characteristic of Scripture and of all that God does in Scripture and through Scripture with His Word, it's the most precious. More than any other thing more than any other place on earth. There's no holy site. There's no place to go on pilgrimage to. More than any other place, it is here through the words of this book that God reveals himself. The creator God separated from us uh, in his, in the first instance, in his transcendence, just different than us, and also separated from us in his holiness That God discloses himself here. And he doesn't just disclose himself here. Listen to this. He gives himself to us here. God gives himself to us through his word. We encounter God here. We we, we listen to his voice. Here we become acquainted with him. Here we we receive comfort and encouragement and solace. Here we, we become more like him here. See, we, we, we can forget this. We, we think about, and this is true in the settings that I'm sometimes in, te- often in, actually teaching, lecturing, etc. We can start to think about God's Word as fundamentally a theological document, a doctrinal book. Fundamentally, the Bible is not a, it's not a doctrinal book. It's a covenantal book. Here's what I mean by that. This book was given to those in covenant with God, in relationship with God. It's a covenantal document. In other words, it's not an instrument merely of information. It's an instrument of relationship. It's an instrument designed to to to. Take us and draw us and nurture us and, and commune with us. That is why God revealed himself to us in the first place. He revealed himself to mankind to draw mankind into a relationship with himself. As J.I. Packer put it in a lovely way, God spoke to us to make friends with us. Isn't that good? He's, why? He didn't just say, here is doctrinal data. Here are golden tablets from above with good information that good Christians need to have. No, he spoke to us to win us, to hold us, to nurture us, to fellowship with us. 
And, and so we, we stay in this word personally, corporately. We stay in this word because in this word, God gives of himself to us. He feeds us here. He spiritually nurtures us here. He, he satisfies us with himself here. And, and nowhere is that the case more than in our corporate worship. My wife often slips notes into my luggage when I travel. And I recently, you can't see it, but I recently uh, found this in my suitcase. Um, it says, me, me, miss you. And you open it up. Only all the time. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I knew the ladies would love that, but then she wrote a lot of other things, and you cannot see this. Um, but I had other things in, I had other things in my, my luggage, my, you know, books and articles to read. I had a ton of work with me, of course. But when I came across this, ooh, I put it aside. I'm not going to open it yet. Uh, I'm going to wait till I'm ready. And then I sat down in a cold comfortable chair, beverage in hand, and uh, I slowly opened the envelope and I read it slowly and carefully, luxuriantly. Uh, I poured over every word. I relished every, I still do, uh, I relished every sentence. I savored all the expressions of, of love and affection and longing um, and something happened. I now felt closer to Julie, my wife. I, I was more in touch with her. I was more mindful of her. I was reminded of the great gift she is to me. I was reminded of our love. My, and my longing to be with her intensified. Do you come to your Bible that way? Do you listen to Scripture being read, uh, being preached, being sung? Do you listen to it that way? Because there God is giving Himself. There God is speaking to you. And, and here's where the analogy drops down. When I, uh, breaks down, when I read that, no, Julie was no more closer to me. She was in my heart and mind, but she was no more, more closer. Uh, but, but through God's Word, He is with you. Where God's word is, God is. And so there is not just memories of a relationship. There is substantive relationship. There is deepening relationship. There's deepening passion. There's deepening love. So as we read, as we proclaim, when we sing, he's drawing near to you and, and to us. He's, he's giving himself to you early in the morning and, and together to, to us. That's why he revealed himself to begin with. And as we know, as we heard, as we need to hear over and over, as we sung, and as you will see what takes up so much of the space in the lyrics that we're singing, what makes all of this possible is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Of all, we, we, we want to be faithful to proclaim, of all that is proclaimed in our meetings, nothing is more central than the gospel. Our, our worship is not merely God-centered, it is supremely Christ-centered. You know, we use the Psalms a lot, Christians have throughout the ages, wonderfully so, use the Psalms uh, in our worship. What do you find the writers often doing, especially in the historical Psalms? You, you see them recounting, uh, recounting the mighty acts of God. You see them praising God, exhorting worship by recounting those mighty acts. Jesus atoning death is the mightiest of all 
of God's mighty acts. And it is the one to which all the other mighty acts point. And so you read about the Exodus and, and God, God delivering his, his people from the most powerful nation on earth by miraculous means, a wonderful expression of God's love and his commitment to have a people. That mighty act points to the ultimate deliverance, the ultimate Exodus that Jesus did that Jesus effected on the cross. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's the climactic act of God in redeeming his people. It is the act of God that we will recount and celebrate and sing about throughout all, of, uh, all eternity. Read the songs of Revelation. It's an interesting Bible study. Read the songs of Revelation. They do not go on to sing of, oh, amazing new heavens and new earth. I love the old heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth are great. The grass is greener. The, the, the clouds are more puffy. Uh, no, it is worthy as he who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He who purchased from out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation a people. That lion who, who is now a lamb, the lamb that was slain slain from the foundation of the world. We'll never stop singing these songs, or at least this content. And it's this book that tells us that, that unpacks it, that celebrates it, that presents it, that reminds us, that helps us plumb the depths of it more, that keeps us from using that for our own purposes. For our own self-congratulation ensures that glory goes to God. So, you know this, don't you? But let me remind you, what you have in your hands is of infinite worth. Of everything you own, everything you could ever own. I drill this into my got two sons. I drill this into their head all the time. God's Word is the most precious and the most powerful possession in your life. You may, you may come to a conference like this and, and see a big worship team and watch the musicians and hear the drum and watch Neil play that bass. Man, I was just loving that bass. And, um, but you could think, oh man, next Sunday I'm back home. It's me and a guitar. Who cares? You've got this. You've got this. And for those called to lead, for those called to lead and serve the church's worship, nothing is more decisive for that than this book. And it's not just your worship. Uh, This goes for all of life. Nothing will be more decisive for your marriage than your relationship with this book. Nothing will be more decisive for your parenting than your relationship with this book. Nothing will be more decisive for your university studies and your posture toward them and what happens after them and the life trajectory you're, you're setting now. Nothing is more decisive than your relationship with this book. And it's because of its origin. That is why, that that is true, all right? So that's first. The other points are going to be shorter, so don't get nervous. Um, There's more, though. The second reason why Scripture is the decisive factor for our lives and our service and our leadership. Number two, not just Scripture's origin, but Scripture's power. Scripture's power. Look again at verse 16. Excuse me. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The the logic is important here because of Scripture's origin, because because Scripture is God-breed, therefore, it's profitable. Given what it is, because it comes from God, this book is, is useful. This book is effective. This book is powerful. Again, behind Paul's words are some massive biblical realities. I mean, he's at the end of his life. He's about to die. It's like he's writing in shorthand uh, a 
primary doctrine that runs throughout Scripture, about Scripture, is the efficacy of God's Word. The efficacy of God's Word. The ability of God's Word to get done what God wants it to get done. I, I mentioned Isaiah 55, 11 a few moments ago. So shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. This word works. It's active. It's not just a moral book. It's not just principles to be applied, although we should apply it. There is a work. There is a task. There's a job for this word to get done, and it gets it done. That's a basic assumption of Scripture. It the word works. The word is active. It's not merely information to be to be analyzed. It's on a mission from God. So because it's powerful, therefore, it's profitable. And in the context, really, this, that, that's the heart of Paul's argument. I, I, love, I, I love how practical this is. Paul doesn't call us to some idealistic theological commitment that's bound to fail. You know? Give yourself to the Bible, you know, it's, it's gonna, you're going to lose, it's going to fail, but you know, at least you were noble, <laughs> at least you were faithful. That's not what he says. Nothing is more practical in our lives than believing and obeying God's Word. Nothing is more powerful in our worship than receiving and then responding to God's Word. And the text shows us just how comprehensive the Bible's transforming power is. Uh, look at it again. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The, the pileup of functions and that, that repetition of, of that preposition, they, they all have, it all has an effect. It hits you like a hammer. It's meant to hit you like a hammer. God's Word is profitable for everything. There's no part of your life to which it is irrelevant. There's, no, there's nothing in your life, there's nothing in this world that this Word leaves untouched. Now, the first two, we would just look at them very quickly. The first two, teaching and reproof, those really deal with what we believe and what we think. There's a positive side and a negative side. First of all, it's good for teaching. Scripture teaches us what's true. It gives us God's take on reality itself. It defines the horizons of reality and authority, from cosmic realities to personal realities. Who God is, what He's like, uh, what He is doing, what are His purposes, wh wh where's history heading, uh, how life works, how people work, what goes wrong, what's wrong with this world, what God promises. You'll, you'll never exhaust the wealth of the teaching in this book. It's, it's profitable. Think about that worship. We don't want to be, you know, bottom line, we don't want to be idolaters. Idolaters sometimes get killed. And ultimately, we'll be separated from God forever. We don't want to be idolaters. We need to worship in light of what's true. It's profitable for teaching. The second uh, is the negative side. It, it reproves us. In other words, it corrects our wrong thinking. It adjusts our attitudes. It exposes our error. I mean, we, we are hardwired by sin and, and then you know, reinforced by culture to think erroneously, aren't we? to value things that poison us, to assume, sure, it's true. No, it's, it's nonsense. It's, it's a lie. All the while congratulating ourselves for our wisdom and our sophistication while we're living in a dream world. God's Word wakes us up. It, it rewires our minds so that, get this, we can actually think God's thoughts after him. Not think thoughts about God. We can think some of God's thoughts right after him and worship him. Next two, uh, correction, training, and righteousness. Those, those really deal with how we live. And again, positive and negative. Negatively, Scripture corrects us. It, it reveals sin. It convicts us of sin. Um, 
It's so easy, isn't it, for us to become anesthetized by our sin, blind to our sin. But, but this comes to us like a big searchlight into the darkness of our hearts. And you, you see yourself and you see God. You, you see yourself in light of that and it, and it looks different. Life looks different, doesn't it? Scripture has this wonderful sin-exposing and sin-weakening power. It's your greatest tool against sin is this book. Under the power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, it, uh, Scripture trains us in righteousness. Uh, the word train there is an education word. It, the word takes us to school. It trains us. It shows us what is pleasing to God. It directs us on the path of joy and fruitfulness and blessing. Think about what Scripture claims for itself. It, it makes some extravagant claims. It, it's God's chosen way to get things done in our lives. Everything that is beautiful, it gives us. Everything that is worthwhile and lasting, it produces. That's why, by the way, Paul, in his own application in the following verses, chapter, that, the, the chapter break here is rather unfortunate, Having, having displayed the glories of Scripture, then what does Paul do immediately in chapter 4? He commands, he charges Timothy, Timothy, therefore I charge you in the presence of God. And you can just imagine Timothy, knees shaking when he read that. Uh, what does he charge him to do? Preach the word, therefore, Timothy. Why? Well, because it's God's powerful voice mediating His very presence. It reveals Jesus Christ. It opens blind eyes. It changes hearts and weakens sin and renews minds and transforms suffering and matures Jesus' bride until He comes again. What more could you ask for on a Sunday morning? Yeah, right? That, that's why, by the way, oh man, that's why worship is not confined to the singing. That's why the, the high point of our gathering as the people of God, as it always has been, look at your Old Testament, the high point of the gathering of the people of God was always the proclamation of the Word. That's why if you are here as a senior pastor, you are the worship leader. Now, you've been given wonderful gifts in the worship teams, the musicians, the writers, the, you've been surrounded by them, and, and they help us respond appropriately to God. But that's not just, yeah, you, you know, the, the music's your bit, I'll take care of the sermon, and then we're, you know, this division of labor. No, because everything we do from the moment we walk in the door is worship, just as everything we do when we wake up in the morning is worship. Well, but that same proclamation is meant to happen in our singing as well, our reading as well. Our... So a simple question, a simple question regarding corporate worship. What, what are you looking to for power? What are you looking for? Um, what are you investing your expectations in for God's power in your Sunday meeting? It, you could all fill in the blanks, couldn't you, with potential uh, arrangements or, or a mix or uh, musicianship or, uh, you know, putting a song in a key that plays to your voice so that when you sing, power! <laughs> well, if you're putting your hope there, any of those, wrong place. Listen to this. God's word and the gospel to which it testifies is the only thing God promises to accompany with saving and transforming power. He makes no promises about your music. He makes no promises about your... He promises to accompany this with saving, transforming, life-giving power. So with, with all that, you, and in saying these things, I am in no way diminishing any 
part of our worship service or any part of what you do. I, I was really moved thinking about this because I know people who are going to come here are people who love the Lord, people who love God's people. So with all that you are no doubt faithfully investing in your churches, faithfully investing in helping people, in serving people, beautiful voices, skilled playing, wise administration, hard work, songs you write, thank you. But, but in all that, value above everything else, value the proclamation of God's word. Because, you know, it, it, we're not about, we all know this, but let's be reminded, we're not, we're not about generating experiences. We're not about heightening emotions. Those experiences, what happens? They fade. Emotions will wane. And people will be left hungering again. It's like they're coming down from, coming down from a Cadbury binge. It's just, oh, it was sweet, but yeah, it's, now I'm hungry. <laughs> Powerful corporate worship roots us not in a mood. It roots us not in an experience. Powerful corporate worship roots us in God. It roots us in the gospel that brings us to God. And where God's word is, God is. It's where you find power. It's where you find power. Finally, lastly, and quickly, why Scripture is decisive? Well, not only Scripture's origin and power, also Scripture's purpose. Verse 17, well, 16, Scripture's profitable for all these things, verse 17, so that, there's a purpose clause, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I, I, I love this verse because it, it shows God's heart for his people. God's word is not just powerful. It's not like some you know, blazing sun that's just there and powerful but impersonal. No, God's word is, is given to us. It's sufficient. It's enough. He, he gives this so that his people... This is true of all believers. It's especially true of leaders. It's, it, he gives it kindly to, to us so that we'll be equipped, so that we'll have what we need. How kind of him. So that we will be complete and, and proficient and, and fully supplied. You, you know, you'd be like an, you know, an SAS soldier. Every weapon, every technology, every piece of equipment, every body armor necessary. I just love those guys. Um, but you, you've got it all. You're just ready. Um, For every good work. Here, here, simple takeaway. Whatever God's called you to do, whatever God's called you to do, the Bible will prepare you. Remember that verse, many of us know, Ephesians 2.10, how we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Do you remember that? Well, the, Paul uses the same words here. Uh, here we learn, and again, using the same vocabulary, Scripture equips us for every one of those works. Every one of those works. Well, I've alluded throughout uh, to to our corporate worship context. This couldn't be more relevant to our corporate worship context. But I I want to, I think I want to conclude a bit more personally, if I could. This conference is filled, wonderfully so, with uh, seminars that will equip you uh, as you prepare to lead God's people on Sunday mornings. Things uh, instrumental, things vocal, things technical are covered. All important uh, aspects of, of uh, serving the church. I just want to say this. The most, however, the most important pre- preparation for Sunday morning doesn't come in rehearsal. The most important preparation for Sunday mornings doesn't come in in music lessons or arrangements or, or technical excellence. The most important preparation comes in your personal engagement with God in His Word. Here's why. It, it, of course, this book doesn't 
speak to all of those aspects of Sunday morning meeting. But here's what it does do. It shapes you into the kind of person who should be leading God's people in worship. Can't be a true worshiper apart from loving God's Word. Because here is where He reveals Himself. Here is where we find Him. And ultimately, this is scary for me, ultimately, how we respond to God's Word is how we respond to Him. You can't diminish God's Word and say, but I'm a worshiper. No. So before you come to a service, come first to God through Jesus. Come to your Bibles, not just for information, not just to tick off a list. Come for fellowship. It's why He spoke to begin with. This book is given, think about this, this book is given to reveal God to bind us to God and to make us like God. Isn't that precious? To reveal God, to bind us to God, to make us like God. So to your daily, diligent, disciplined preparation, add as the first ingredient God's Word. Never come without praying. God, give me yourself through your Word. Draw near to me through your Word. Speak to me through your Word. Address my heart. Address my circumstances. Address my family. Address my aspirations. Address my desires through your Word. He will answer. It may not, real quickly, it, it may not be always dramatic. It might not be an immediate, ecstatic experience every time you sit down to read your Bible, but I promise you, God's Word promises you, pursuing God through His Word over time will change you. It will produce affection for God, transformation by God, fruitfulness for God. And that will overflow into corporate worship whose high mark is not us, but God. Worship where God's Word is central. Worship where the gospel is proclaimed. Its glory is unpacked, its mercy celebrated, its implications lived out, all to his glory. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message by Jeff Perswell entitled Faithful to Proclaim. It was given at the second main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries Worship God UK 2014 conference. For other messages and more information on Sovereign Grace Ministries, please visit our website at www.sovgracemin.org. That's www.sovgracemin.org.